Let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to just briefly, uh, Pastor Brian mentioned this event coming up, uh, the, this cultural moment, faith and politics uh, discussion. It's, it's funny. In the very same week, I've had indication from people that they'll, they'll say, you know, my, my political views, I'm kind of, you know, kind of to, to, to the right. I feel like, is the church trying to, like, pull me left or is, like, with these speakers, these ideas? And the very same week, someone on the other side said, you know, I, I'm kind of way to the left. I feel like everything's kind of to the right. And I, are you trying to pull me or push? And I think the, the suspicion that, you know, we're trying to um, do something or pull something here is, uh, is a symptom of the climate we're in, that people, do I belong? I feel like I don't belong in this church. I feel like my views, you know, are going to be somehow condemned or something. And, and it's, um, the question for us, though, is what is our ultimate hope? It, it, our ultimate hope is not in government, in these people who say, you know, if, if, if my side gets its way, then I feel safe. And if the other side gets their way, this is going to be utter chaos. And the other side's ideals are dangerous to our country, which in fact may be true. But our ultimate hope is not in our country. It is in Jesus. There's, there's limitations of, of government. Government is good at, at making laws and coercing people to um, act a certain way or not act a certain way. Uh, but it's, it's all... Coercive. We have the gospel of Jesus. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can genuinely change a heart. We can actually transform an individual um, to to know what is right. And um, you got to remember too that you know Christianity grew up in a political climate that was hostile to Christianity. Um, it, it was you know the government didn't support Christianity; tried to suppress it, and, and Christianity grew like wildfire. And, or spread like wildfire. Um, and in places in the world that have had just pretty much the most religious freedom, Christianity hasn't always done well. And when Christians have had a lot of political power, they haven't always used it well in the history of the church. So, um, it's again, it's where is our ultimate hope? It's in Jesus. The, no matter what happens politically in our world, the gates of hell cannot prevail against, against Jesus. In the glorious gospel. So that's the, that is our ultimate hope. However, we want to um, speak Christianly and think Christianly into the, the, our current events and, and dialogue of our day. So we're, you know, we, we listen to different talks and ideas. Now, when we bring in a guest speaker, it's not because we endorse everything that is being said, but we want these ideas to engage if I agree with them or if I disagree with them. And... You know, if all we listen to is people that we can just completely agree with, I mean, you can do that on your own. Um, but we want to have some challenging ideas and, and try to learn together how to, how to um, engage these things. And we don't want to be fearful about it. Now, you could say, you know, as a lot of us were broke up, you know, raised, you've you got to break these things apart. You cannot mix these things ever. Maybe that, you know, that actually might be a good idea. But we also don't want uh, to be crippled and silent in, in the dialogue of our world and our culture. So um, so anyway, so check out the event, register for that. If, okay, so it's, it's not even noon yet, and this guy's already talking politics. What in the world does this have to do with the Gospel of Luke? Okay, you may be asking. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, 
Think about the political climate in which Jesus unfolds God's kingdom. Jesus, when he came, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He is, he is ministering and ushering in God's kingdom into a political climate where Rome is in control. And Rome had its uh, hierarchy of leadership and laws and structures and taxes. But these are the Jewish people who had their own laws and taxes and hierarchy, and they had their own system. So you've got these two systems. You, you know, These people are trying to follow God with kind of two sets of laws and two sets of taxes. And then Rome is kind of monkeying around with the Jewish system too. So if we read in Luke chapter 3 that all this is happening during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, the high priest is the high priest. Why is there two high priests? It's because there was one that Rome endorsed and kind of put in place. And there was one that the sort of the common, the Jewish people recognized as the proper high priest. So there's these two high priests. So you can see it's kind of a chaotic um, situation organizationally, politically. And then within Judaism itself, there was different parties. There was different sects of Judaism. And then, so so the ruling class was the Sadducees. And this was the elite, these were the elite ruling class. They were much more, in their worldview, very, uh, much more Greek in their thinking, kind of sort of Hellenistic in their thinking. Uh, and then there was the, more the populist group was the Pharisees. And this is a group who was trying to preserve a more traditional way of Judaism. And this is, this is the group, the Pharisees, who they're accusing Jesus in this account from the Gospel of Luke that was just read for us, they were accusing Jesus of breaking the law. For the Pharisees, their whole issue was that Israel had lost its way. Israel had lost its moral grounding, its moral bearings, and they've strayed from God's law. And so to correct that, they were promoting a very, very strict interpretation and a very strict adherence to the law of Moses, to the Old Testament law. And we, we give the Pharisees a hard time when we teach about them because they were in conflict with Jesus. So we love Jesus, and here's the Pharisees, and you know, they're the bad guys. Jesus is the good guy. But remember, the Pharisees were very moral people. They really were trying to restore uh, morality and obedience to God's law into their nation. They were seeking moral reform. They weren't... Um, you know, trying to be the bad guys. The problem with the Pharisees in this process of trying to restore holiness and moral order and obedience to the law was that they totally missed the point of God's law. God's law was good, but they, they missed the point. And Jesus, by his words and by his actions, he pointed out to them that they missed the point, and they didn't receive that very well. They didn't like being told that they were, were totally missing it. For us today, sitting here, the the misunderstandings that the Pharisees had about God's law are the same misunderstandings that we can be prone to have ourselves. So we need to hear Jesus' words carefully so that we don't fall into that. They are such common misunderstandings that in your everyday life, on the front lines of your life, you're going to meet people who have these misunderstandings about God's law. And we want to be able to speak truth about God in God's way, and about his law and the Bible, and we want to understand it rightly, and we want to... What happens is people reject Christianity, but they misunderstand Christianity. They're not rejecting what the Bible says. They're rejecting what they 
based on a misunderstanding. That's sad to me. It's one thing if somebody says, I know what Christians believe, I know what the Bible teaches, and I reject it. That's one thing. But when people totally misunderstand and they reject it based on misunderstanding, that's sad. And I'd love for people to know. I want us to understand this, and I'd love the whole world to understand it. So I want to give you uh, two ways in which the Pharisees are missing the point here. I want to take them one at a time. They're related to each other. The first misunderstanding is this. The, The misunderstanding was that faith in God is primarily about following religious rules. So the Pharisees were really into their rules and regulations. And they set up, they had the law of Moses, and they set up a whole set of rules so that they wouldn't break the rules. It would be like saying, you know, if we had a rule, uh, you may not travel to Canada. Then you say, well, then, I'll never go to New Hampshire because it borders Canada. I'll never go to Vermont or Maine because I might accidentally, you know, fall across the St. Croix River and end up in Canada. <laughs> so if I stay in Massachusetts, I'll never violate the Canada law. It, 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 it was that strict. Um, here, in the context here, they didn't have a specific law against that, but here, uh, the, the, the law was to keep the Sabbath day, to take a, a, a day of rest in every week. And they had very strict rules about how to observe that, and they see Jesus as anti-Sabbath. Specifically, his disciples are uh, walking, they are hungry, they have not prepared food, and they are walking through a field, and they take grains that are... are ready to harvest, they, they pull the grains with their hands and they roll them in their hands to get the husks off and then they blow the chaff and eat the raw grains because they were hungry. Now, specifically in, in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament law, you could, that wasn't stealing. That was actually legal if you're in somebody else's field, as long as you're not using a tool, as long as you're not using a sickle or something, you can just kind of pluck if you're hungry and, and eat grains off of somebody's field. However, harvesting food and preparing food on the Sabbath day was forbidden in the Old Testament law. And that's what the Pharisees are getting at. They're saying that what they are doing, pulling the grains and removing the husks, is preparing food and they're lawbreakers. Now, the Old Testament doesn't specifically say, expressly say that the act of pulling with your hand and removing husks is preparing food. You see, the the law, it doesn't go into that detail. So the Pharisees said, absolutely, that's law-breaking. Was it? I don't know. But um, the issue here is that there was very different views about how to read the law, how to read the Bible. The Pharisees had a very strict interpretation, a very rules-based, you know, they're looking at the Bible primarily as a rule book, Jesus is approaching the Bible with an open heart, with faith, and trusting God the Father in all his ways. And that's the big difference. So this is how Jesus responds to the accusation. Verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? So he says, Have you never read your Bible? (laughs) Verse 4. He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread... He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. So look, David's men, David, the Lord's anointed king, um, he's, he's on the run, and he's hungry, and he's with his people, and this bread, by God's law, was, was supposed to be just for the priests, 
and he eats it and shares it with his companions. Very similar. So you have David and his companions eating food that they technically, by the law, shouldn't eat. And you have Jesus and his companions who are eating when, in a way that may be violating the law. The principle here, we would think, is that human, the human need, the human hunger, outweighs or outranks the law against preparing food on the harvest. So the food laws are important, but if there's a human need that supersedes that law, then that's an exception to the rule and that's acceptable. And we would agree with that, right? So if, if okay, there's right and wrong, but if it's to, to save a life or someone's hungry, you know, we might go to extreme measures. So we would expect Jesus to say, human needs supersedes this, you know, the Sabbath law. That's not what he says. Look at what he says. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, he, it, basically, if we're going to get into a debate about which rule we follow or which rule supersedes another rule and how are we going to understand which laws go before the others, you're totally missing the point. Sabbath is not about following rules. Sabbath is rooted in the heart of God. There's a big difference. Keeping Sabbath is about understanding God's heart rather than developing this intricate way of, of, of um, detailed rules. And the thing we need to remember is that the whole point, we can, never full, we can never please God simply by following rules or following the right rules with the right exceptions to the rules. We follow him by trusting him. And the law was given as a way to trust God. It was, um, and it was a complicated law. And there was... You know, in, in every specific instance, you know, which law do we follow without violating another one? But the point was that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will give you a way and you can trust me in it. But it was always about the heart of the believer, not just simply following the rules. But, but that's hard. I, just, I would rather just, like, just tell me what's right and wrong. And I'll do what's right, and I'll avoid what's wrong, and God will be happy with me. That's a lot simpler than this always having to trust and try to figure out what God wants from me. But when we think that way, we're, we're thinking pretty highly of ourselves. That if I knew what was right and wrong, I'd always choose right. And if I chose right, that God would be so pleased with me. When Scripture teaches that no one is righteous... That no one, can, when you sin against a holy God, you can't just make that up by doing a nice thing. That it's an ultimate offense. We, are, we, are, we stand condemned before the Lord. We need to be made right and justified. We can't do that simply by following all the right rules. But it's, it'll be so much easier, we think. I loved working with students in my years uh, doing uh, ministry with junior high and high school students because they were so straightforward. They're just like, just tell me if it's right or wrong. It's like, you know, JP... Is, is, it, is it sinful for a Christian to smoke marijuana? And I say, well, what does the Bible say about that? They say, well, God gave Adam and Eve all the green plants. You know, <laughs> this is just a green plant, man. It just grows out of the ground. You can eat it and smoke it. You know, this seems like a good green plant. And then my response back in the olden days when marijuana was illegal was I said, well, it's, it's illegal. And so, you know, there's, we're instructed to follow our laws and not violate them. So it's illegal, so we would avoid it. But that was in the olden days, so now it's not illegal. So it puts, it puts Christians in a new uh, 
with the new dilemma, is it wrong for a Christian to smoke marijuana? And just give me the yes or no, right? But, okay, is it, is it, is it kind of like alcohol? Because most Christians would say, if, if a Christian were to enjoy wine at a wedding celebration, say, for example, that, that, that Jesus would be okay with that. John chapter 2, right? Yes, Jesus would be, seems to not have a huge problem with Christians in the right context having wine at a wedding celebration. So what about the, um, so it, but it's potentially intoxicating and it can distort reality. Isn't that the same as marijuana? It could be intoxicating, it can distort reality. And, but, so they're similar in some ways, but chemi- these are very different chemicals. Uh, these are very different. Why? What is the motivation for using these things? How are you trusting God? Can you glorify? Are you doing it to glorify God and to enjoy Him, or is it, is there something else there? And um, so you see, it's not as it's not as easy as yes or no. So I fall down on uh, this. Just to to be clear, this is not a good idea for Christians to do. Um, but again, it's not about the rule. It's about how are we trusting God in this. And again, if you talk to people who are daily marijuana users you, and you see, or if you have been one or, or are one, the sort of the, the numbing, reality-distorting cloud, uh, the demotivating uh, properties of some of these chemicals, you know, probably should be avoided. But um, the, the point is, how can I trust God to understand these things? Because he wants my heart. He doesn't just want my, my obedience. My obedience could never earn his favor. But I trust him because he loves me. I trust him because he is my God and I am his person. For us, maybe a more relevant conversation would be about the Sabbath. And in context, could uh, probably more appropriate. Do, you know, do I ha- how do I observe the Sabbath? Do I have to go to church on Sunday? How do, I, how do I violate Sabbath or do I practice Sabbath? How do I trust God in this? And we just have to go back. Well, what is God's heart? What was the purpose of Sabbath in, to begin with? And again, Sabbath being you know, designating rest in our week. It, it, well, it, it all starts with God's heart. In, in Exodus, when the law was given, God says to, keep, to, to observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. For in seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it, or for in six days, he created the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh day. Sabbath is a pattern that God created into creation, that the God of the universe works and works and creates and then sits on his throne and rests and enjoys the creation. And we, too, are people who we work and we toil, but we can stop and rest and enjoy God's creation and know that he is in control. When the law is reiterated or re-given in Deuteronomy, it, the command is to keep the Sabbath because, the reminder is, because you were slaves in Egypt and God rescued you from that. It's a reminder that you are not a slave. We rest because God created us not to just always toil and accomplish, but to, to be able to stop and know that he is still at work even when we rest. That's God's heart for his people, and we can enter into that. So how you choose to observe Sabbath, how you find rest in your life, is a matter of faith in God, not rigid rules that, I, that somebody could prescribe to you. On the front lines of your life, you are going to meet people who see Christianity as just a set of rules. It's all just a moral code. And if I agree with that moral code, I might be interested in being a Christian. If that moral code doesn't match my sensibilities, then I reject it completely. And the whole, it's not about 
agreeing to the moral code or disagreeing to the moral code. It misses the whole point. It's about trusting the God of the universe. We'll meet people, or perhaps we fall into it ourselves, who think, I can just please God. I'll just do good, and I'll just avoid evil. And remembering that I am way too broken to do that. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he fulfilled all the requirements of the law for me. That he lived it the perfect life that I could never live. He chose right every time. He rejected evil every time. So that on the cross, he can be my substitute. He takes my sin. He gives me his righteousness. I stand before God, not condemned. I stand before him justified because of what Jesus did, not because of the things I accomplish. And then I realize he loved me that much to do that, to die for me. That love now compels me to want to obey his law, to want to follow his law, uh, to, to want to please him in every way. That's the whole point. But if we see faith primarily as religious rules, we, we're going to miss the point. That's the first misunderstanding. Second misunderstanding is this, and it flows from that first one. It, the second misunderstanding is, well, if it's not about these uh, religious rules, then are, aren't you just picking and choosing? Aren't you just con- it wasn't Jesus just contradicting the Old Testament, picking and choosing which laws to follow. The, the Bible is therefore contradictory or arbitrary or at least inconsistent. And so this is where I have to confess my own sin. Uh, on Friday, I didn't trust you. On Friday, I, I went to lunch with my friend, and we went, and I had the most wonderful plate of scallops. They were exquisite. Fried scallops. And they weren't the breaded fried scallops like we're used to eating, and those are very good, but they can be kind of heavy with all the fry, with all the batter. They were what I would call a naked fried scallop. So it was fried, but not battered. So it was perfectly tender and moist and delicious and with the side of French fries, and it was, it was just great. However, it was in direct violation of the Levitical law. Leviticus chapter 11 forbids the eating of shellfish. And yet I enjoyed Every second of it. <laughs> and you hear this one, or maybe you, maybe you haven't, but I hear it, where they say, well, you know, you, vi- you eat shellfish, therefore you, um, you don't really care about Old Testament law, yet there's some of the Old Testament law you think still applies today, and you're just picking and choosing, and that's inconsistent and arbitrary, and therefore your faith is, is useless. I said, well, that's a, that's a big mus- misunderstanding of how God's law works. There's a different type of law that God gave his people. God gave his people sacrificial and ceremonial law, and it was all about cleanness and uncleanness, and that's where all these dietary laws, clean foods and unclean foods and, and, and garments and, and that are pure and unpure, and all these illnesses and skin diseases, all these things were part of the, the, the ceremonial sacrificial system. That sacrificial system points, and again, the whole sacrificial system is... Um, Punishment for sin is serious and it requires punishment. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled. He's the once for all sacrifice. We don't have to repeat all these sacrifices at the temple because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice once for all. So those, all the ceremonial and, and, and cleanliness laws, we don't have to follow them. We follow Jesus who fulfilled it. But God also gave his people civil law. They, they were a political nation. And so God gave them laws of how to, to live as, a, uh, you know, as the government, 
But we don't, we don't live today as a political nation. We are a spiritual nation. We are a holy nation, as Scripture teaches, that God has called us to be a, a nation of people that isn't bound by borders and kings. We have one King Jesus who rules, and we are part of his kingdom, but we are not a political nation today. That it is, Israel is not just Israel. It's, it's all who, by faith, uh, as Abraham had faith, put their faith in God. So it, it's, it's, the, the civil laws don't apply. But there's also, God gave moral law to his people. And the moral law still holds true to this day because the moral law is rooted in the character and the holiness of God. And as his people can reflect his character and holiness. So we follow the moral law as summed up in the Ten Commandments and um, other places in the Old Testament. Um, and Jesus actually said, you know, you're going to follow that law, but it's, even, it, it's not about rules. It was never about the law. He said, look, the law says, the moral law says don't murder. So we agree, okay, that's moral law that we still hold today. But he said, you know what? I say, uh, if you have hatred in your heart, it's as if you murdered. The moral law said don't commit uh, adultery. Jesus said, I tell you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's saying, look, it's, it's never about just the law. It's about your heart before the Lord. And the law is a way for you to understand God's heart and to trust him, but it's never meant to just be those rules. And it's not arbitrarily picking and choosing. That God's moral law stands forever. It doesn't change. What makes it hard for us is God did not give his law into neat categories for us. And sometimes it's very clearly this is moral law. Very clearly, this is ceremonial. But other things we, we might debate, and we can debate those. But we also have Jesus. We also have all the teaching of, of, the, of the apostles, which clarify some of these things for us. So, for example, my, shellfish, my sinful shellfish lunch with my friend on Friday... Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7 and then confirmed to his disciple Peter in Acts chapter 10 that these, these clean and unclean, it no longer applies to God's people in Jesus. So we have the New Testament that reiterates some of the moral law for us and sort of reminds us that the other ceremonial law we don't follow. The key in this is faith. That you love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength that you love your neighbor as we seek to, to know how to follow him. Uh, and then it's, it's the way that we follow him all the time. Jesus said, what is, uh, look at verse 9 real quick. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus is saying, when is the right time to trust God? On a day of rest. Do I trust God when I'm at work? Do I He's saying, we trust God in all things, whether you're working or resting or worshiping or going to work, or going to school, or whatever you do, those are, every single moment is a moment where we can know and experience God and trust Him and be obedient to Him, to know that we're forgiven, to know that we've been so loved that we can be motivated to love Him and to serve Him in return. It's not about following rules. It's not about being arbitrary about which rules we follow and don't follow. It's about trusting the God who gave it all for us.